Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When reading an ancient text in translation, especially one laden with nuance, there is a high risk of misunderstanding. On the one hand, there are expressions, cultural and historical references, and terminology that are not immediately accessible to modern readers. At the same time, a statement's meaning often seems obvious when, in fact, the translation is misleading or the reader has assumed a context that is foreign to the narrative. The first rule of exegesis is that everything must be heard in context, historical context, linguistic context, but most importantly, narrative context. When a phrase seems to jut out of St. Paul's letter, such as, women are to keep silent in the churches, it feels jolting and chauvinist to modern readers. As jolting as it seems, rest assured such a statement flows with the broader discussion and does not mean what your 21st century ears think it means. Richard and I discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 39. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 118 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are ready to move on to the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This section has this difficult verse about women speaking in church. So often people take this as further evidence, so to speak, of how Paul hates women or wants to oppress women or this sort of thing. I just want to remind the listeners of what Paul has been saying up to this point about hierarchy. You never want to read these verses in isolation. And when you have the hierarchy that Paul sets up, every person must submit to somebody. But even those who are higher up in the hierarchy must be submitting to those below them by taking care of them, by helping them. Paul reverses what power normally means. He keeps the hierarchy, but turns power upside down. And it's not who you are or what you are that orders your position in the hierarchy. What orders the position in the hierarchy is the gift that you've received in chapter 14. And the one gift that has seniority over all gifts is the ability to explain the prophets, the ability to explain the teaching in the community. At St. Elizabeth, you know, you've always made it a point how we're not going to sign up for a cleaning. We're not going to have a women's society. The way that you ordered the church when you first started, it seemed very different than other parishes that I've seen. One of the first things that people asked me as the community began to grow was, can we have a women's society? Because people come to churches with their idea of what church is, which is formed from their experience at other churches, 
and people get into a habit of thinking if that's the way it's done, that must be the way it should be done. But when your reference is scripture, you're not thinking about the way other people do things. You're not trying to learn from how other people run their parishes. You're trying to allow the word to impregnate your ear so that this generation to which you have been called to minister is not formed by some earthly legacy that was handed down, but by the teaching of the apostle himself. You have to take scripture as the critique of how everyone's been doing it up to this point, not necessarily the basis for which everyone has been doing it to this point. You know, you always have to be listening to it as a critique of how people say, oh, this is how we've always done it. Absolutely. So with respect to the women's society in particular, what I've noticed about churches of all stripes in the United States is that men tend to take a back seat, which has always struck me not only as lazy and dysfunctional, but in many ways as chauvinist. There's this attitude that women have to run the church in terms of cooking the meals and cleaning the church and making sure things happen. Maybe you have a man who's responsible for fixing things. But women are the ones who are responsible to look after relationships and to organize meals for people who are sick or are in trouble. So when you create a group organized around gender to perform that function, you are, first of all, creating the possibility for division in the community, which is incorrect according to 1 Corinthians. There are no groups. There is only the scroll, number one. Right. That's the primary reason. But number two, something we've discussed, Richard, why shouldn't men be cooking meals and ministering to the sick? Why? Why shouldn't men take an active role in participating in the choir or in doing all of these things? What happens is that when you allow a group to form around gender that is responsible for that part of church administration, you are undermining the hierarchy that Paul establishes in 1 Corinthians because the job of the man is to teach and to act on the gospel for the sake of the poor. And if it's delegated to some group in the community, everybody else attends church as a consumer. And so the men walk in, sit down, who do happen to come to church, and consume what others do for them. And this is a betrayal because the whole discussion about women in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 does not shame women. It shames men because the only reason the women are having to do all of this is because you're sitting on your rear end. Since we have industrial society, now we have machines to do what men did. So then what's the men's role? We still need to eat. We still need to have groceries. We still need to take care of children. So that stuff that women used to do while men were busy doing these other things, now the men are idle. But the way Paul sets it up, men always have the responsibility to be taken care of whoever is weaker than them. So in the household, the men have a duty to take care of the people. Taking care of means teaching. The men have the duty to teach. I mean, this is even in Fiddler on the Roof. The women keep the house so men can read the holy book. But now we have women who take care of the house so men can watch the NFL. Paul makes it clear that you can say that man comes from the woman just as easily as you can say woman comes from the man because his point is not about gender. It's about hierarchy. It is hierarchy that is paramount. And your position in the hierarchy, I want to repeat myself, your station in God's household pertains to your knowledge and ability to preach the word of God, which means that if a woman can teach, she should teach. 
And if there are no men who can teach, and a woman has to stand up and teach on her own, shame on the men and honor to the woman. You cannot read it as shame on the woman the way so many people have done. So when Paul talks about shame, he's saying, what is this? Why does she have to do the work? Where are the rest of you? And by the same token, it doesn't mean the women are shaming the men by speaking. Therefore, we should have the women stop speaking. No, it means the men should step up and do the work so that they can be the ones who speak. The women should shame everybody when they speak. And a man should shame everyone when he speaks the word of God, not when he speaks. If you speak the word of God, everyone is put to shame. And that is what Paul is doing. He is showing you how you are put to shame when a woman preaches a word. Now, you think being put to shame is bad. That's why you get all wrapped up in a tizzy about who's shaming who and what's a shame and what's not a shame. But if you haven't figured out from listening to 1 Corinthians that everybody's being put to shame and that the duty of the one who speaks a word, which is the prophecy of God, is to put everyone to shame, then by all means form your women's society and your men club and you're this club, and you're that club, and run the church just like you run every other secular organization. But then don't ask why no one goes to church anymore. Because the club at the bar is much more interesting than the club at church. If people are going to come to our communities, it's going to be so that they can be fed the bread of life. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Be unexperienced in evil through the governance of the scroll over your thinking. It's the scroll that gives you mature thought. As Chrysostom says, without scripture, you can't grow to full maturity because you're selfish like a child, kicking and screaming about what you think is just as important as scripture. We all know that we grow up because of the school of hard knocks. And all of us experience hard knocks through life. But scripture makes us go through some extra hard knocks. It's graduate school in the school of hard knocks. And it really makes us more wise because it really challenges us to our core when the world has stopped challenging us. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me says the Lord. Here, strange can also be translated as foreigners. So by foreign tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. So in the current context, he's talking about Greek-speaking Gentiles who are speaking Torah to his people. The goal is not just to teach the inner group. It's so that everyone is taught and so that everyone is able to receive a teaching from anyone. In our culture, we think that because a Muslim is speaking, we don't have to listen. But he's saying here, I am speaking through the foreigners. I'm speaking through the people who do not have the same faith as you. Of course, in Isaiah, it's specifically about the enemies of Israel whom God sends in judgment against the king in Jerusalem. So you can see how Paul is applying prophecy. Notice, he's been talking about the primacy of prophecy, and now he's opening the scroll of the prophets and applying this judgment. And it's so interesting to me that something so central to Scripture is so unbeknownst to so many people in the church. It's the people on the inside who are the problem, and God always uses the people on the outside against you. 
The reason it's unbeknownst is because it's impossible to hear because we have a veil over our eyes because we are slaves to our own biology and believe in our own survival and our own upbuilding and we can't get around it. In Isaiah, it's a foreshadowing of being taken away into captivity into Babylon by foreigners. What's even more interesting is that then once you have Isaiah 40 and following, it's foreigners who bring Israel back into the land showing that God's sovereignty, the Lord's sovereignty, is not just over Israel, it's over everyone. He doesn't just show it through wonderful actions, but also the word is going to come from those who are foreign to you. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. You speak in other languages, in order to share a word with those on the outside. But when they come in, then they're going to have to learn the language of the scroll. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad, that you are nuts? Having a bunch of people speaking in a bunch of languages, then nothing is taught. That's why he says that prophecy is a sign for believers, if we want to learn, if we want to understand what we're supposed to be doing, if we want to understand how to keep the assembly together, what's the point of everyone going and speaking their own language? What that means is that no one's actually talking to each other. They're all talking to themselves. So you go to China, you magically speak in tongues because Captain Kirk put a chip in your brain. Wonderful. And a Chinese guy says, hey, that sounds interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. And you bring the Chinese guy to your church, and then he sees everyone speaking different languages all to themselves in the corner and smiling. He's going to turn around and run away. This is a funny farm. This is what communities look like when everybody's selfish. Not only is it a funny farm, there's nothing to be learned. What's he going to learn there? So it's a funny farm that's consigned to its own madness. Everybody inside their own head is nuts. The only way you get away from your own insanity is by grounding your thoughts with correct actions according to God's instruction, the first of which is relationship with other people and submission to them, and it always orders your thoughts correctly. And when the community is functioning correctly, this is exactly what it provides. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. The correct community is where all are striving like Paul said, for the greater gift, which is prophecy, which is teaching. And if all are prophesying, which means that all are in sync with this difficult, critical teaching of the prophet, then when an unbeliever, an ungifted person enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. It means he comes into the assembly and he says, dang, I was comfortable. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing that there are these critiques against myself that are true that never even crossed my mind. And everyone in the assembly is bringing this to me. And the secrets of my heart, the secrets of my mind are disclosed. They're already critiquing my mind. They're critiquing my thoughts. They're critiquing my life as if they knew me. This is how the word takes flesh, but it has to be the word that takes flesh, not your word that takes flesh. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. This is the problem. When St. Vladimir went to Constantinople, he declared that God was among them because he saw incense and he heard bells and the singing was so nice. There's nothing in the account that he was convicted by the prophecy. If you come together and the secrets of men's hearts are not disclosed, then you just are building another secular organization 
or another religious organization that Satan will use to wield against the weak and the downtrodden. You better believe it. He liked the fireworks, but where was the teaching? What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has an apocalypsis, an explanation, an uncovering of the meaning of the text, or has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Earlier on in the book, there was such a critique against people who thought they understood, who believed they were wise. Now he's showing what actual understanding and actual wisdom are. Everything must be done so that people understand the teaching better. Like you said before, Father, that the secrets of his heart, of his mind, are disclosed and being critiqued by the prophecy. This is what they have to hear. This is what they have to learn. And whatever anyone does, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has interpretation. Everyone has to have something to teach. If they don't have something to teach, the assembly is not functioning. If they don't have something to teach, they should keep silent. Until they do have something to teach. Correct. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. You have to turn the garbly gook into a teaching. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. This is where we shift gears and Paul tells you who needs to keep their mouth shut in church. And let him speak to himself and to God. If it's not teaching, it's of no value. It's of no value. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. He's imagining a community where everyone knows scripture so well that when someone speaks, the entire assembly immediately goes to scripture and is thinking about scripture and is able to evaluate on that basis. This is essential because when you are preaching, if you are doing the science of reading scripture and trying to explain what it says by submitting to what it says. And I'm not talking about morality and ethics and integrity. I'm not interested in people's integrity because no one has integrity. I'm talking about the work of paying attention to what the scroll is saying. If you do that and you make a mistake and someone points out to you, Father Mark, I think that you got the Greek wrong. It's easy to say, oh, okay, it was wrong. Because you're not building a system the way that academics do. They build their whole career around an assumption about science, and then someone proves them wrong, and they have a crisis. That's not science. That's another form of philosophical theology. Science is always saying, if I got the data wrong, then I have to change what I'm saying. And the closer you are to scripture, the easier it is for you to just admit when you're wrong without a big crisis. But if someone tells a theologian he's wrong, and he thinks it calls into question his entire framework, which it usually does, he has a crisis. How dare you tell the priest that he's wrong? There's a crisis because they don't submit to the assembly. If the community is well-formed in scripture, and they hear the theologian, and they say, it doesn't make sense according to scripture, the theologian can't say, I'm not going to listen to you, unless he wants to reject scripture. He can only stick with his guns if he's not interested in what scripture is saying. I want the listeners to hear what Paul is trying to imagine as a community. All this time, the community has been submitting, 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 submitting to one another. So the theologian who wants to then just argue to keep up his own edifice, he was lost in chapter 10. Now we're at a place where, okay, everyone is submitted to everyone. Paul is imagining a community. I mean, imagine in your own community. Imagine what would happen if people, when they spoke, 
They were trying to speak a word of scripture. They were prepared enough to say a word of scripture. Not only that, the people listening were so prepared that they could respond with scripture. And the secrets of your hearts were laid open because everyone knew that the scripture was speaking about the secrets of humans. This is the community that Paul is imagining. So if you in your own community see problems, step one, submit. Step two, know scripture better. It's a two-step plan for parish growth and improvement, although your parish won't actually grow and it probably won't improve. This is what Paul gives us. If the authority for you is scripture, then you'll have no trouble. If the authority for you is the framework you created, which is your false god, then every time someone asks you a question, they're threatening to crucify your false god. It's not rocket science. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Authority comes from God's teaching. For you can all prophesy one by one. There's plenty of time. If everybody is knowledgeable in scripture, let them come to Ephesus school and teach so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Remember that when someone steps up to teach... They're not only giving instruction, they are being formed by the instruction if they submit to the rule of the teaching in giving instruction. And here I want to make it clear. You cannot just have a parish meeting and say, everyone give me their opinion. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, everyone study Torah, study my letters. And if you can demonstrate your zeal and commitment and a purity of heart in your single-mindedness about studying this teaching so that you may receive the gift of prophecy, then we have no right not to have you stand up in the assembly and speak. But if you want to just come give your opinion because it makes you feel good, please go stand in the corner. And in a case where two people have the gift of prophecy, they're not allowed to speak at the same time. Even if you have the gift of prophecy and you have a word to speak, If there's someone speaking a word, you submit to that. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, meaning if one gets up to teach and someone has a question and he speaks an error, he should submit to the correction because he's not submitting to his brother. He's not submitting to the assembly, even though it looks like it. He's submitting to the authority of the scroll. That's the key about what you were saying earlier. It's the key about what I always say about submitting to authority. You're not submitting to authority. You're not submitting to the assembly. You're giving deference where deference is due, which is to the teaching. It's like that line from Pulp Fiction. Do you listen or do you wait to talk? If you are in the presence of a prophet, even if you are a prophet, you listen. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And here, peace, as Father Tarazi has explained many times over the years, is when the parent comes to sit at the head of the table and the children stop squabbling. That is what peace means. That is the meaning of shalom. That is what peace means in terms of the assembly. Everyone stops doing their own thing. You can't market your churches by saying here everyone gets to do their own thing. No, you don't validate people doing their own thing. We're here to do one thing. And if you don't want to do it, it's no problem. You're free. But if you're serious about Exodus... And you want to be a slave of the God of Abraham. In this household, we are slaves to this one activity, which is studying scripture. And here, when the scroll is opened, everyone shuts up. 
There is no joking. There is no laughing. There is no sitting. And there is no photography because now we're going to read the gospel. So just chillax, open your ears, and close your mouth. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Now, before you have a nervous breakdown, he is not saying to women anything different than he has said to men or to anyone else in the story. Everybody has to shut their mouth. And this idea of women in silence is definitely not about gender in Paul's letters. When you look at how it functions systematically, not only in his letters, but in the Gospels, it is about the assembly. Everybody knows that the word Zion is interchangeable with the word Mary in the Byzantine hymnography, which means that from a very early stage, everyone understood that communities were represented in Scripture by women. And Paul is telling you that unless you have to teach, keep your mouth shut which means the community doesn't speak. Mary in the Gospel of Luke receives the Torah and keeps her mouth shut. She keeps silent. She ponders the instruction, which is the role of the church. I frustrate people when I say this, but I'll say it, and you can engrave it on my tombstone. The church does not speak. Only God speaks. And are you saying the priest is God? No. I'm saying the one who stands up to read the reading and to explain it, male, female, alien robot, or chimpanzee, if they can stand up and read this teaching and explain it, they are godly. They fulfill the godly function. That's what Paul is saying about Isaiah, that even the outsider can be godly. You think it's about what gender you are or what station you are? It's about the authority of the scroll. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. If the household is being run correctly in the Roman society, the man speaks and the woman does what she does, whatever the man commands, right? But it's saying here, if they desire to learn anything, the husband has to be prepared to teach in the home. So what would this mean in our own parishes? As much as the women are making sure that all the things are happening, taking care of the sick, making sure there's food, making sure it's clean. At least as much effort is put in by the men to know scripture. Clearly that's not the case here. It's not the case here. How many households do we have where the man can teach scripture to the family? Everybody has a responsibility to hear and to teach. And within the hierarchy that's set up in the household in this case, men and women have a different place in the hierarchy. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It means they've been assigned a job. If the woman has to speak, that means the man's not doing his job. And that means that she's being taken advantage of, which puts shame on the men for not doing their duty. So here, Paul is using the woman in a way to judge the assembly once again. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Who's the reference here? And here, we keep talking about shame. I think it's important to understand that the English translation here betrays Anglo-Saxon chauvinism. Eschros means shameful, disgraceful, or sordid. But and shame is the operative word. It sounds like it is improper for a woman to speak in church. 
And it sounds like it's saying it's not good. It's something incorrect. Which is British speaking. culture. Is it proper? Is it not proper? That's Correct. not how Paul it's is not, talking. This is not a question of etiquette. What no. it's saying is that if women are speaking in church, if they're giving a teaching, it means they're filling a vacuum that the men were supposed to be filling. Women naturally pick up the mantle of the work that just needs to get done but, around the parish. But that's abuse. And it is abuse. It's a sign of judgment because if that's what's happening in American churches, it's what's happening in American homes. So you have to read these things carefully and you have to study the original languages and not react emotionally when you think you hear an example that validates your feminist critique of all of history. It's a shame on the entire parish when the women are doing the lion's share of the work. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Meaning, did you produce the word? Do you have an exclusive right to this word? No, the word is something that you must receive in the assembly and then pass on at home. You have a duty to simply be the conduit of the word. He's speaking to men here, not to women. That's the beauty of it. And he's saying, the fact that you are making your women do this work demonstrates that you are taking honor to your own self and not giving honor to the scroll to God's teaching. When you go home, when you speak, does that mean God's speaking? No, no, not if it's not scripture. And has it come to you only? Does it mean that you can listen and then come home and not teach? No, you have a duty to listen in the assembly and speak the word at home. This is the job of the man. So I'll let you have a women's society if all the men join, and I'll let you have a sign-up sheet as long as everyone is volunteered on the list without asking. Then we're in business scripturally. Otherwise, there's no hope. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. In other words, it doesn't matter what you think or what you say or how you judge or evaluate your own abilities or what you think your calling is. Hear the word of the Lord. You that stand in the gates of the house of the Lord, thunders Jeremiah, in the gates of the house, you have to hear the word of the Lord, which is that this is not the temple of the Lord. It is the word that establishes the temple. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. It's a play in the Greek. If you don't know this, others won't know you, meaning your speech will not be recognizable. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And here, again, you have the correct translation of the Greek before they impose this translation of proper and improper. But here Paul is saying, yes, things can be proper in the Greek, but what's meet and right and proper and orderly is what conforms to the biblical word in a particular context and functions according to the biblical word. Evskimonos means in a good schema, in a good structure. Orderly is in taxis. It means it's in order. There's an order. There's a hierarchy. There's a way everything works. Don't speak above someone else. Prophecy comes before other things. Everyone has a duty to teach. All this works for the sake of making sure the community stays strong, but around this word of the gospel of Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself and served others through his life so that you also can give up your life, your own ego, so that everyone is speaking this word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Have a great week. Thank you, Father. 
just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.